Welcome back to Driven Minds. My name is Gigi, and this is a Type 7 podcast. So today we're speaking with Richie Houghton, one of the most iconic techno musicians in the world. When I say techno, I mean dark, heavy, intense, juicy, rhythmic, pulsing tracks that can span over 10 minutes. The type of music that put Detroit on the map when they invented the genre in the 80s. If you've never been to a techno club, I highly, highly suggest you go before you die. Contrary to what you might think, going to a techno club is actually the most introverted in a sexual experience, even if you are rubbing against hot, sweaty bodies, listening to pulsating music. What unites us is that we all go to feel something and just to drown and die in the music. Everyone's waiting for the same drop, that moment when the beat kicks in and everyone goes mad. And it's this incredible moment of togetherness. In the words of my dad, if this sounds like mumbo jumbo, go experience it for yourself. The shadowy conductor of this nocturnal abyss is Richie Houghton. He's most well-known for the music he created under Plastic Man, a musical alter ego he invented back in the 90s, but he alternates between various identities. His live performances are never planned, meaning he doesn't cue up songs or prepare any sort of playlist, which is equal parts frightening and unimaginable to me because I can't imagine thinking on the fly in front of 5,000 people, but apparently that is how he makes a living. Another thing worth noting is that Richie has collaborated with some pretty cool people over the years, like the artist Anish Kapoor and designers like Raf Simmons. He also helped write the music for the opening ceremony of the 2006 Winter Olympics, which I found super cool. And very recently, he opened a very chic and very sexy sake bar in Berlin, which is where we recorded this conversation one rainy October day. I just strolled in, set up some microphones, and let it rip. I've actually never bought a bottle of sake because I feel like it is so experiential, like with the cups and the sake bar vibe. What is your favorite part about owning a sake bar? Wow. Um... <laughs> On a very basic level, just sharing another one of my passions to people. You know, I think everything that I do in my life is about following what really excites me and turns me on. But that doesn't really make sense if it's only just for me. Yeah. <laughs> Cliff Notes version of the first time you tried sake. When I was growing up in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, there was a tapenyaki hot grill. And I remember having sushi there for one of my first times and loving actually more the cooked stuff. And I was like, I should like this sushi. And then I had sake and it was warm. And but I, I should like this more. I kind of liked it, but I, I think I liked the idea of it more than I actually really appreciated the taste. I hear you. But it didn't take away from my fascination with Japan. I went there for the first time, 94, for a Plastic Man show. Mm -hmm. And that's where I first really discovered that there was something deeper in sake. I want to go back a bit. You were born in England. Mm -hmm. You moved to Windsor, Canada when you were nine. I consider myself 
pretty well-traveled, but I've never been to Windsor. Tell me, <laughs> tell me what I'm missing out on. I came from a very close-knit family in the UK. My mom had 11, 12 brothers and sisters. So we had all these aunts and uncles and kids. And then suddenly it was just me, my mom, my dad, and my brother. And we landed in Windsor. What I remember right away were these huge cars that all the telephone lines and power is above the streets. So there was all this stuff. And we landed in winter. It was freezing outside, but everyone was blaring the, the, the heater. So it was all these extremes. And um, we lived in a hotel for the first four months until we found a house. So it was, it was such a weird feeling. But Windsor is a small town, automotive place, very blue collar. And I don't know if this is true, but I remember when I left England, I felt like I was kind of popular and part of everybody. I was like every other kid somehow. Did you have a British accent? I did have a British accent. But when I moved to Canada, I became the oddball. Mm. You know, I sounded different. I dressed differently. I acted differently. And I think that really actually in the end made me just want to dig into that. And so I started searching for things that the other kids weren't doing musically and in fashion and quickly the small town of windsor became small and right across the border was detroit and that became a place to go beyond what windsor offered i google mapped that actually yeah. and windsor is a seven minute drive from detroit yeah meaning in the 80s which is when techno was born you were in your teenage years in a bridge away mm. from the techno epicenter in this burgeoning subculture. I mean, how'd you get pulled into that? Windsor, if you're living downtown and you go downtown Detroit, you're actually closer than most people who live in Detroit. A lot of my friends who say they lived in Detroit, even some of the other artists, they lived in the suburbs, seven mile, eight mile. Right. So half an hour away, 20 minutes away. I'm not making a, a hierarchy on that. I'm just, it was just a very weird situation that I was so close to this other city. While in another country. While in another country. <laughs> but also because I was a kind of an immigrant, other people who grew up in the area, their parents grew up with the riots of right. Detroit. They had their kids as Detroit was the murder capital of America. Right. And so the border although it's even more open than it is now because there's a lot more immigration checks and this and that now, as you can imagine, you could kind of go back and forth just showing an ID. Sometimes they didn't even ask you for ID going between the countries. But 99.9% .9 of my friends and my friends' parents, it was no man's land. Nobody went to Detroit. So how did you find techno? What was that first foray into it, if you're living so close to it? Well, you know, I was into breakdancing and electro. That was me and my friend down the road. We had all cardboard in his garage, and we used to do these flips, but you know, backflips <laughs> and worms. But that was probably when I was really getting into my own style of electronic music, because of, of course, before that, my dad was very influential on me because he had Kraftwerk records and Tangerine Dream records. So as a kid getting into music and then finding more industrial music that all led me to Chicago records and then into Detroit records. And then you go to a club in Windsor and then suddenly you're like, well, isn't there a cooler club? And of course the cooler club is Across in Detroit. <laughs> yeah. So you go, your friend bangs on your window on a Wednesday night when you're in high school 
you crawl out of the window, you go to Detroit with fake ID, and you come back and get back into bed before your parents wake you up for school. Did they ever find out you were doing this? Uh, they say they knew it all along, but you know, um, my parents were always pretty open-minded. So anyway, I found industrial clubs first. Define industrial club. Okay, like at 16, 17, an industrial club was more gothic. Like every, warehouse-y? Every, yeah, warehouse-y. Everything was painted black. Everybody wore black, black eyeliner, spiky hair. It wasn't punk. It was goth. This um, is like mid-80s. It was very androgynous. It was every gender. It wasn't colorful in clothing, but it was very colorful in the people you would meet. There was a transition period as it went from industrial techno into very pure house clubs and techno clubs in Detroit. But a very, very important thing. As we were going to clubs, I say we, because quite often I would go with my brother who was two years younger. What age are we at this point? Probably 15 and 17 around that time. So a lot of the kind of normal kids who just wanted to drink would go to Windsor on the weekends because they could drink underage at 19. Or just like get drunk so, in Windsor so, and then so, go to Detroit. So there was thousands of people going to Windsor. And then there was a couple of us who didn't care about drinking, but we could get into the clubs to hear good music going to Detroit. And were you introverted or extroverted at this time? I'm extremes of both, but definitely more introverted. That's why I liked DJing in the end. I wasn't the kid in high school who wanted to be in a band on, on stage. You know, I helped design one of the fashion shows and it's, you know, like I was the behind the scenes kid. And DJing was everything about being behind the scenes. Right. Most people didn't care or know where the DJ was. They were on the dance floor and enjoying what was coming out of the speakers. Right. You know, and Houghton of that time would never aspire to be a DJ now. Really? 100%. No way. That's so fascinating to me. So no matter how much you love techno, when you first heard it, you were going to clubs on the weekends, the idea that you would be in stadiums, you know, playing in front of an insane amount of people was absolutely unimaginable to you. The only thing that mattered back then was whether you played good music, mixed relatively well, and as a producer, made good music. And and so I went from going out with my friends, being really into music. Jumping out of your window. You know, yeah, jumping out of the window. <laughs> having Before all that, I was really into computers, so I, I was very much into music, into tech. Finding this music that was uh, nameless, faceless, it was futuristic, I was a sci-fi buff, and... Then slowly realizing there was this person in the corner who was doing and controlling this whole crowd and doing it what by themselves. And I kind of went from the dance floor to the kid who was hanging out watching this person play records. And then slowly I started to make steps into that position. So actually, in addition to being a podcaster and a journalist, I am also a DJ, which I feel so... Ridiculous saying in your presence, <laughs> which, by the way, is my own imposter syndrome shit, not your problem. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm so curious what your first gig was like because mine was somewhere south of hell because I barely knew the equipment, didn't know how to beat match, nothing when I first got hired for a gig. And the only reason I got hired was because I grew up in New York City and 
got a fake ID the moment I found someone on Canal Street to print one for me. So I knew all these club kids. I knew the gremlins. And I ended up getting booked. And I opened for this really hot DJ who just owned the club scene. But it was so awful. I, like, didn't make transitions. I just played, like, song after song. And then the DJ came who I was opening for and just obviously, like, ripped it up. And I went home. Tears were involved. And the next day, I looked up a DJ who could give me the breakdown of how all of these buttons and how the mixer works, CDJs. But that was my first DJ experience. I would hope that yours is more successful than that. Yeah. I remember spending a lot of time in my basement with one Techniques 1200 uh, and one turntable from my dad, which had some kind of pitch control and trying to mix. And it was really difficult, but I remember spending six months down there practicing. And is this after you first heard techno? Is this after you went to Detroit? Yeah. Yeah. This, well, yeah, I would have been going to Detroit for a while. So this, this is probably 16, 17, you know, like 87, 88. I started doing one or two gigs in Windsor before trying to DJ in Detroit. And one of my greatest triumphs was getting the club owner of Windsor to pay I don't know how much, but it was a lot for him to bring Jeff Mills over to Windsor to play. Wasn't many people who attended, but I got to stay in the booth and watch Jeff play. So I'd been listening to him for a couple of years. I'd never seen him play, never met him. And there he was throwing records around. And right, I, all vinyl. And, and I was, it was so incredible. It was so intense. And one of the sneaky things I was doing, of course, was looking at the records and kind of copying some of the names down. No Shazam. And and copying a name of a record is one thing, but then finding it is another adventure. And that took me downtown Detroit to a record store called Records for You. And around somewhere in this, I realized by looking at the records when I found some, and I, and I was like, I think this is the one that Jeff played. He was playing records for like 30 seconds. I was like, I think this is, you know, bounce your body to the box. I remember bounce your, I, and I thought, Bounce your body to the box. Kevin, Master Reese, Anderson, Seven Mile Road, Detroit. I was like, okay, I get totally crazy thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> and I had an experience. There was another record store called Off the Record up in Royal Oak, Michigan. And they had a contest for Details Magazine, which at the time was the cool fashion New York magazine. And we had to be in the front of the window. Everyone got, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes to play for this contest. And from my recollection, I kind of planned my set. I kind of wrote notes of, okay, plus eight, plus six, like, so I, and then I, I failed miserably. It was <laughs> terrible, but oh, I won. No. But how do you fail I, I, and win? Well, you know, well, I'm my worst, worst cr critic. So were you but, shocked that you won? Yeah, but, it, but I was totally shocked that I won, but I felt like I didn't deserve it. But I also, around that time, I had this incredible girlfriend, Rachel, who was like, my biggest supporter. She was telling everyone I was the hottest shit. You oh. know, like, and I was everyone like, needs a hype person, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. Like it, you know, it's all about your friends and become your early fans and you, you build it like this. Like yeah. that, that's what was happening for me. I think her persistence and this details thing got me into a club in Detroit called the shelter. And that's where I started playing and started also failing miserably. And, and just as the crowd started to come in, Scott Gordon, would come and say, 
great job. Let me take over for you now. You oh, know? <laughs> that, so, that happened to me so many times, Richie, when I was DJing. They're like, okay, it's your turn yeah. now. Like that, but, you know, it's but, someone else's turn. Yeah, but the, the, this, club was, this club was 9 p.m. until, I think, 5 in the morning. Uh-huh. And the hot time was, you know, 12 till 5. So Scott would show up at 11.30. I had 9 till 11.30, 12. Every evening before, it was a Saturday night, I would go up to Seven Mile Road, go to a record store called Buy Right. I was working at a video store at that point, I had graduated out of McDonald's and um, <laughs> I took all the money that I'd made, bought all the records, then I would go and just play those records. And that was my schooling. In terms of how to read a room, that's always so interesting to me as the DJ because when you play a song and you have everyone dancing on the dance floor, that next song is so crucial because when they stop dancing, your self-esteem, it's like a sh- mm. shrivels. And you really do have to be so attuned to not only the floor, but the emotions of others and what you're trying to incite. Because at the end of the day, you're a feelings maker. How do you read a room? And was there a learning curve for that? Yeah, it's a learning curve. Like you can practice to beat match, mm-hmm. like beat matching some of these skills anybody can do. Right. You know? But I think reading a room does require a, a really deep sensitivity to reading people and shadows and eyes and movements. And it can only be practiced in real life. Mm-hmm. There's no simulation yet. And I think the idea of letting the crowd stop dancing was also important. Like playing something that was going to be like, oh, okay, like, what is this? Like giving the, the crowd something uneasy, something challenging. And and then bringing them back up. This is part of the the storytelling. And yeah, letting people stop dancing is is an important moment on a dance floor. Yeah, you are there to entertain. You're there to give people your feeling. But you're there to take them on your journey, Mm. you know. And your journey is part of their journey. There is this feedback loop. So it's like, it's where do you find that balance, you know. And like, I think that's. One of the reasons why DJing today, like 30 years professionally, why it still resonates with me, why it's still exciting, because there's new music, there's new people, and, and it, it never can be the same, you know? Like no the, two shows are the same. No, the two. people, the records, the, the club, the time, what's happening in people's lives. And for the way I play, which is just like slamming things together in the moment, it's like a freight train. Like it's on the tracks, but it's just about to come off the tracks, but it's just barreling along and you're all on it. Like there's no way to jump off. Uh, that's the magic of a great DJ performance. Yeah. You mentioned before about the nerves before a show. What does anxiety feel like and how does it manifest for you? That's a great question. Yeah. I, anxiety is just, it, it, you have to be in a state of flow when you make music or where you perform. Mm-hmm. And anxiety just puts roadblocks and too many thoughts in my head where I'm unable to release. It's like meditation. You know, you have, you meditate? I do. When you can really observe an idea and you can let it go, that is really impossible when I have any kind of anxiety. And that type of meditative flow is when I play at my best. Mm. And anxiety is is not only just about performing well or living up to expectations. It's also 
finding a way to quiet my brain and let myself know that those other things that I'm working on or those other ideas that I would like to dig into need to be done at another time. Mm -hmm. And now is a moment to focus on what's happening now. Mm -hmm. The world is in this hyper extended reality of so much going on, but you know, are, are we trying to capture everything and, and, and just miss what's actually in front of our faces and mm -hmm. performance is what's in front of your face. It doesn't matter if you play the right or wrong record. It's about noticing what you did and right. then making an adjustment and then continuing on with that and knowing that you have a certain mission to do in that hour, two hours or five hours. Right. Um, Jeff Mills, said this on this podcast that, you know, he doesn't like to talk to people before his shows or anything. And I was like, yeah, sometimes I'm talking to too many people right before my show. Mm. You know, it's like you too get to the input. club and you're, you're so excited. And I want, you know, now I'm going to all my sound checks and you meet everybody and you kind of get that vibe and it's done. Mm -hmm. You know, like you've kind of done the introductions. And, and then when you get to the club, at least then I feel a little bit more free to then do what I need to do for the show, mm -hmm. you know, which may be, just going into the back room and withdrawing and maybe going to the corner of the dance floor and just like kind of hiding and, and listening and seeing what's happening. Mm -hmm. But anxiety can come up if I don't have that moment to come into myself before I play. Mm -hmm. But also, I definitely need more sleep than I used to. Feeling rested in whatever age you are and strong, mm -hmm. you know, gives me power. It gives me confidence. So in the early days, I didn't need to do much for that. It was just there. I was so excited about the scene. I was traveling to Europe for the first time back into the 90s. You know? Adrenaline is speed. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, 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 now, since I was like 30, it was more having a, a stronger body, having a you know more focused mind, com meditation coming in, in, into it later. Yeah, just to have confidence in, mm -hmm. in, in what you're doing. So, 90s. <laughs> you're really on the 90s. Eh? <laughs> I'm really in the 90s because I think that you're becoming Richie Houghton in the 90s, right? There's a couple things that happen. I'm, I'm Richie Houghton in the beginning, and then Plastic Man comes in. Plastic Man becomes my alter ego, potentially is a way for me to be unknown and faceless as mm. at a time when DJing is becoming more about the person. Yeah, image driven. But it actually kind of flips because Plastic Man becomes my most popular pseudonym and the album Sheet One hits, music hits, 95, it's, it's massive in the UK. And that starts having Plastic Man on, on covers. And, and, and so. Wait, wait, wait. But so how did the kid who was making music in his basement and wanted to be faceless forever, yeah, yeah, how did he feel about all of a sudden getting this kind of yeah, notoriety and front face? No, no, it was, there's, there's ego in all of us. So at one level, you're <laughs> like, wow, this is cool. But I remember being noticed or recognized in London in, during that time, 93, 94, and feeling really uneasy about it. Why? And, and I just didn't know how to respond to it. Like someone would recognize you on the street? Yeah. And then, you know, talking to and, and, and then asking for an autograph. And then by the end of the 90s, I've understood that, okay, my image is part of this. How do I keep control of it? And how do I use that to reach more people? Right. Because this is one important thing. From the very beginning, even though I was a kid that didn't want to be seen, I wanted everybody to like techno. I wanted everybody to think the record I was playing or was hot. 
I wanted people to put down guitars. I wanted people to stop saying that electronic music wasn't real, that we weren't musicians. So even when I was a bit introverted and I was scared or I, I felt I still wanted to spread my enthusiasm about what I loved. And that ambition was bigger than any sort of introversion, wanting not to be seen that was inside of you. 100%. And I think that's taken me into some decisions where understanding that if you want to take this further, you know, it actually needs to go beyond just great music, but it needs to go into great imagery, you know? Mm -hmm. Was it crazy druggy here in that time? Or why do you think techno is associated with drugs? You know, the, the, the very early days when I was coming up in Detroit, I have this naive recollection that that was very little drugs. Really? There, there was some weed, right. but most of the places were non-alcoholic too. They were so focused on the dance, strobe light, killer system, and losing yourself in this celebration with... And, and, and it was so communal. Like it was, okay, I was an introverted kid. I was like in my own world, but I also felt very welcome on these dance floors. There was clubs that were black African-American clubs. There was gay clubs. There was industrial clubs, but they were all kind of like the weird clubs. And you would see a lot of the same people at each because they were happening on Wednesday nights, Friday nights. Right. And that was really, really beautiful. And you didn't need any other stimuli other than other people people sharing this incredible music experience. So when do you think that started happening, this drug surge? Because now it's impossible yeah. to even imagine going to one of these techno clubs where even like one person's sober. I mean, everyone is yeah, on yeah. something. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think most intense music scenes, people end up wanting to experience and push themselves and experiment. And there's a certain club culture has always been hedonistic. Right. Um, but it is important to be very clear that how undruggy Detroit was back then. Yeah. But you definitely noticed in Europe and, and even going to New York, like there was people in different states of, of, of mind. And I think that just in, increased as the scene got more popular because there's a couple of reasons to go to clubs. Okay. You're either into music, maybe you're, you're single, you're looking for something. But while I was there and while a lot of the crowd I met, we were there for, for music and after a certain size of the scene globally, you just end up having more people who are there for different reasons. You know, at least my style or what I love about electronic music, because there's no very little vocals and it's hypnotic and it's this escapism and there's, there's freedom on the dance floor. I think it, it is a perfect melting pot to push yourself mentally and physically as far as you want to go. And, that has also been very enjoyable for me, not only experimenting in frequencies and DJing, but also what happens when you disappear into music. Mm, I really like that, disappear into music. Yeah, that's Plastic Man is really disappearing inside of me and, and, and feeling like you could run around in, in, in the music. Like music is, is physical. Like we here we have sake bottles and tables, but I, I've always imagined you know, bass drums and hi-hats and claps and, you know, how could you run around one of those instruments? You know, how does it sound different as you get closer and far? And these are things which I would think about in some of my more deeper hallucinogenic experiences on the dance floor. And these are things that I would definitely bring into the studio when I was recording later. 
What was one time in your life that was particularly hard for you or a time that you remember the most amount of struggle? Probably 2003, four, long-term breakup, you know, with my girlfriend, moving to New York, trying to chase her down, failing miserably. Oh, he's romantic. Yeah. And then, you know, going back to Windsor with the, my tail between my legs. Oh, in de- in we've, defe- been, we've all been there. In, in, in defeat. <laughs> And then recording a Plastic Man album uh, and letting all of that come out and living through that experience, you know, by myself in the studio and kind of being on the edge of, you know, am I completely insane? You know, am I just heartbroken? You know, and also at the same time feeling like, where am I supposed to be? I'm not really from Detroit. I'm in Canada. This is post 2001 where the borders become completely locked down most of my friends are in in detroit i have a lot of friends in europe am i supposed to go there like what do i do like you know so much decision so much indecision was a really like mental time really mental but it's what brought me in the first place to come to berlin really and to live in europe and to make some big big changes in my life so it was a impetus to escape, essentially, and come here. And to to escape, to start a new life, to find the spark back in in music. Berlin in the early two thousands, it was just beginning to be the place that everybody wanted it to be. The the energy and spark that was happening at warehouse and illegal parties and forty eight hour sessions, sun up, so sundown, sun right now. I can't, like, I can't even sit here. Like it was it was very hedonistic and it was so small and like it was beautiful. And I I ended up being here with a bunch of crazy friends from Detroit and New York and it ended up being an absolutely beautiful time. So Thank God she didn't take you back is basically the moral of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 when you look at it like that. Thank yeah. God we're good friends now. There you go. So when you release something now, are you confident or are you still wondering if it will be accepted or are you just like, fuck it if they like it, they no, like it, if they don't I, fuck them? I, I wish I could be like, here it is, fuck you, yeah. you know? It's a bit of everything. I get nervous before I play, but I know that I play unlike anybody else, and I love how I play. And if I'm rested and ready, I'll knock it out of the park. And then you also, you do more and more as you get excited and you meet new people and then, okay, sake becomes a passion and then I'm involved in fashion and this and that. And you can only do so much and everything takes from your energy. And so it's it's about energy flow. It's about energy balance. I'm very confident when I control my energy so that I have the right amount for the output on the things that I put my mind to that I can do an incredible job. But the difficult thing is that energy balance and, you know, deciding what you really want to do and what you're really good at. You know, because for Western culture, we all think we can do everything, right? We all think we're masters of everything, especially now. Everyone's a DJ. Everybody's a DJ, but everybody's a graphic designer. Everyone's an artist. Everyone's a creator. Like, okay, give me a break. You know, like not everybody can be everything or what is in their head, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. This is why Japanese culture, you know, and there's good and bad to Japanese culture, of course. So, and I don't know it deep enough to make a, 
a complete statement on it. But what I find very interesting yeah. is their dedication to an idea, a task, a discipline, mm -hmm. and something that they will follow you know, for their whole life, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I, you know, so I find a lot of inspiration in that, but I'm a totally terrible example with how many different projects I've got going on. How was COVID <laughs> for you and how did you spend it? Because I, um, went back to New York during the first lockdown and lived with my parents for the first time since I was 18. Wow. And it was such a unbelievable time of going inward reflection, all the things that everyone's talking about. And so many things come up, right? For me, it was realizing the importance of having a partner, which I do not have. So I guess that is a shameless plug for my <laughs> single dumb. <laughs> but I'm curious, I'm curious what came up for you. Um, I think one of the things I felt that I hadn't been doing enough and I felt some kind of anxiety was being in the studio. I felt that that was what had paved the way for Richie Hot and Plastic Man and was the hours clocked in the studio. Yeah, yeah. And 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 just what I was able to do there had put me on this incredible path the last 30 years. And that that I was kind of cheating myself and maybe my fans by just squeezing in small just enough time to do an album here and there. And I felt that I hadn't stayed on top of the technical innovations and, and, and software mm -hmm. as much as I should have, or as much as I was pretending to be on top of. And COVID gave me the opportunity to dig into that, to remember the introverted kid who loved to be in the studio where he felt comfortable. And I spent so many hours of my teenage years and early nineties in front of computers. And that's, it was my way to communicate with people. Did the loneliness ever get to you? Um, I had ups and downs. It, it was like 10 day down periods and then four weeks of like humming. What did a down period look like for you? Just frustration because I, I, I didn't want to be in the studio. I wasn't creative. Um, and two months before COVID, my wife, Laura and I started transcendental meditation lessons. And that really was absolutely an incredible daily routine, which allowed us to find ourselves. And it also found ourselves separately and also together because it was something we, we sat and meditated once or twice a day, every day during COVID. I'm still kind of in the, the space of the amount of time you've spent alone creating because that is, at least for me, hands down the hardest part of doing something freelance and honing your skill is the aloneness. I, and I, I love it. You love it. No, before I met my wife, I would go on a vacation every January, but I often went by myself for three, four weeks, Asia somewhere. And I loved that. You know, sometimes I felt a little bit of guilt. It wasn't like I was going with my brother or my parents or, you know, time is so fleeting. But, mm -hmm. and this is what I love about electronic music. If I'm very honest, I, I love that I can create something from beginning to end. And it's as pure as I can get the information out of me through the machines I use. Mm -hmm. 
And for me, the revolution of electronic music in the 80s into the 90s was that you didn't need a multi-million dollar studio. Mm. You could have a home studio. Yeah, super You didn't need accessible. a guitarist. You didn't need the whole infrastructure. Even And back then, for the I didn't have a manager for first 20 years nearly. You just need ideas and how to use these tools. And mm-hmm. you could do it. Yeah. I can just like imagine though, the going from something as solitary as being in front of screens in your basement to being in front of a crowd. I mean, does that ever shake you at all? Yeah. yeah. But like, that's why like my shows are also very techy because you can hide behind it. I can hide behind it. Like in, in some ways, the last DJ performance show, um, or concert was close, which was two years ago. And that was all the cameras on what I was doing. Cause the idea was just let me do what I do. So I don't have to pretend to perform. Maybe, okay. Maybe I punched my fist once or something, but capture that and then let's beam it to the people. Right. And the show before that plastic man live was me inside this led cage. So you saw me sometimes, but actually the show was on the front of the cage and I was kind of this silhouette in inside. These are all just kind of reimagines of me being in the studio, you know, and being alone with my machines. Mm-hmm. Like I actually don't want to make eye contact with somebody in the audience. Really? Really. Has that ever like, happened? Yeah, it does. I get, then I get nervous because <laughs> it's also not about one person. Right. It's much more about this energy that's emanating from the dance floor and you're trying to take that in and, and lose yourself. And when I stopped thinking and being anxious or thinking about expectations of myself or people like that, when that disappears, that's when the magic happens. You know? I was working on a piece for this Paris installation with John Gerard that just mm-hmm. debuted yesterday. And I was working and working. And then, you know, I still wasn't happy with it. And I got up really early. I was in the studio by 7 a.m. I was actually got there because I had another meeting at, at, at 10. And then it was just, I love the mornings now. Like, it's quiet. I, I just let go. And by 9.30, it was like, okay, I cancel the rest of the day. and talk to you later. And then everything just suddenly came out. And the, the beauty of that piece happened then. Like I had done 80% of it, but the real magic happened in that time. You didn't expect it. You can't plan it, but you, you've got to at least be able to know when it happens and then try to hold on to it mm-hmm. in the studio or on stage as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Do you have any perfectionist tendencies? Yes, I think I, but the way I've I've been brought up in music is we had no multi-tracking back in the early days. Everything was analog. And so you press start, you press record, press stop, and your song was done. You had a little editing. And so you couldn't over-perfect. And, and actually, now I think this is probably one of the biggest problems in electronic music is that the tech has become so good that certain styles are actually losing something by being over-engineered or over-computerified. And in performances, I tried to leave things as loose as possible. There's preparation, there's songs, there's a, a crate of hundreds of records, but I'm not making a set list. I'm not even making a crate for a specific gig. It, it just, it just, actually. it just, it just happens. It's always, okay, if I had prepared it a little bit more, would it have been better? Or am I just telling myself that's the way I play because right. I'm, I'm, I'm lazy. I, I, I don't know. What drives you? Mm. 
challenges, ambition, competition, and just to feel like I'm doing something different, that I'm unique. I don't want to be like everybody else. And you're not. <laughs> so mission accomplished. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this great. Was fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I will let you open your sake bar now. Yeah. Yuki. <laughs> Yuki, there's a line. There's a, there's a lineup. That, my friends, was Richie Houghton. You can follow him at Richie Houghton on Instagram and Twitter, and me at Gillian Zmanski on the same. I always want to hear what you think of this episode and every episode. So DM me your comments, questions, concerns, the works. If you want to find me in person, you can come to Berlin. And on any given Sunday morning, you will find me stationed next to the speaker in a deep, dark techno den. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>